About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The very night when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel, and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and told that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are mad. But she insisted that it was so. They said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell this to James and to the brethren. Then he departed and went to another place. Hello and welcome to the Agiostos. My name is Bill Dextra. Today is January 16th, and we are commemorating the chains of St. Peter. Okay, my first reason for going over the chains today was because I didn't know anything about the chains. I didn't know anything about the, uh, the devotion to Peter's chains. And I soon found out that it was a vo- it is a devotion that is uh, visible in both Eastern and Western traditions of the church. The Western church having one set of the two chains and the Eastern church um, having had the other for the majority of its history. But first, first I have to tell you about something. I have to tell you about a little event that's happening here in Saskatoon. So anyone who is listening that is in the Saskatoon or Saskatoon area, this is for you. And also, if you're 19 years or older, on January 25th at St. Peter and Paul Church here in Saskatoon, we are having an event called Pierogies and Pints. This is for young adults, 19 and up, ID required, happening after the 5 p.m. liturgy on January 25th. 
2020, this year. So it says on the bulletin, the young adults of the parish are invited to come, pinch pierogies, eat said pierogies, and refresh yourself with conversation and beverages. Uh, register by January 22nd by emailing at youngadults.stpp at gmail.com. That's youngadults.stpp at gmail.com. ID required, the cost, 10 bucks. You pay 10 bucks, you get to eat freshly pinched pierogies that you yourself pinched, and, you know, have a couple libations. That sounds fun to me. Anyways, check out, uh, check out the event, that is, if you're, if you're old enough. If you're 19 years and older, ID required, 10 bucks. Another thing I wanted to bring your attention to is a little blog called BusyMom.com. That's B-Y-Z-I-M-O-M. That's how you spell mom. B-Y-Z-I-M-O-M.com. It is a Byzantine Catholic resource for moms and families for stuff. And I will be including a link in the show notes to their website, specifically to a Chains of Peter soup. If you can believe that, there's a Chains of Peter soup that you can make to commemorate today's feast day. Or whenever you want to commemorate the Chains of Peter. It doesn't have to be today. It doesn't have to, uh, doesn't have to be in the, in the middle of the winter. Uh, it can be any time. Anyways, I'm going to leave a link for that. You should check out her stuff. It's great. She's got resources to other things. Check it out. B-Y-Z-I-M-O-M dot com. Okay, so... Back to the Chains of Peter. So the veneration of the Chains of Peter began in Jerusalem, where the the chains were. In the 4th century, so after 300 years or so of Christians venerating and being healed by these chains, in Jerusalem, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, uh, Juvenal, offered them to Eudoxica. She was the empress of the eastern half of the empire. And Eudoxica took one of them and put it inside the Hagia Sophia. The other chain she sent to Rome, to her daughter, Eudokia, who was the empress of the western half of the empire. And she had a church built called the Chains of Peter, and the Chains of Peter were placed in it. So for over a millennia, in either in respective churches, the chains were venerated throughout the centuries. As a matter of fact, when Eudokia, I I think I'm getting the name right. I think it's Eudoxica in the West. No, Eudoxica in the East and Eudokia in in the West. Anyways, when the chains came to Rome, they took them. And, of course, Peter had chains while he was imprisoned in Rome as well. And these two sets of chains, they brought together and they, like, I was, I was almost about to say magically fused together, but by the grace of God, rather, they fused together. And, and they were placed in that church. They're still there today in that church, um, though they are no longer in Constantinople, and we'll get to that in a second. Anyways, it is likely at the fall of Constantinople, in my mind, that the chains went missing. Reason being, we have reference to the chains in the Hagia Sophia leading up to that point. The first instance that I'll highlight is in 1200, 
where a an Anthony of Novgorod, he uh, wrote a famous prayer, uh, not a prayer journal, a pilgrim's journal, not the, the way of the pilgrim, but just a, just a regular journal. And he had mentioned within his journal that he had seen uh, the, the chains of Peter in the Hagia Sophia. And this is at the year 1200, so at the beginning of the 13th century. We have other accounts from other pilgrims and liturgical works from the 14th century stating that there in the church of Constantinople were the chains. Now, there's also the issue of the dates being different. The date is different in the West. Well, there is no date in the West anymore, sorry. So that the because of the Second Vatican Council, they, they took out this feast. Um, and it was, I believe it was in the summer. I believe it was in July. And the way that some of the sources kind of talk about this, the difference, because we're obviously, we obviously celebrate it in January. They celebrate it in six months. And the reason for that is because it took time to travel the, the chains from Constantinople to Rome. And that, that was the answer that was given uh, for the discrepancy of the date. Now, I have two instances of a miracle happening from church history that are related to the chains of Peter. Now, I wasn't actually able to find the original source for this, though I, I did find references to them. Um, not, But at the same time, I wasn't really able to find where this legend originates from. So, but let's read it anyways and see what kind of edification we can get out of it. When Constantine the Great became Roman Emperor and ended the persecution against the church, the Christians of Rome gathered the relics of the Apostle Peter together with the chains that held him in prison in Rome, and a temple was dedicated to them by the emperor. The chains were greatly venerated by the faithful, for just as the shadow of the apostles worked miracles, so also did the chains that held him. The relics of the Apostle Peter were placed on a throne in a hidden area of the temple to prevent this theft, and this area was only open three times a year for Christians to go and venerate the Apostle sealed, seated on his throne. Around this time, a man went to the then Pope of Rome to confess a sin which heavenly burdened his soul. The Pope heard his confession and gave him a penance, that in order to be released from the burden of his sin, he would have to be enchained with the heavy chains of Peter all around his body and walk around the entire church seven times. After he completed his seventh walk around, he was to go to the hidden chamber which contained the holy relics of St. Peter and knock with his head on the locked door. If the door opened on its own, then this would be a sign that the man's sin had been forgiven him. The man did as he was told in humble obedience and knocked on the chamber door with his head. And to his great amazement and gratitude, the locked door unchained itself and opened. This miracle became famous far and wide, and from then on, all those who came to came to the Pope for confession, were prescribed the same manner of penance for the healing of their soul. The Second Miracle One day a man who worked on ships as a tradesman fell into a great tragedy that left him poor and caused him to lose all of his possessions. Coming to the point where he had not the means to live, he prayed to St. Peter to loan him the golden shoe that was placed on the relic of his foot 
in his church. That was oddly specific. Anyways, let's keep going. He promised the apostle that if he granted him this loan, that once he was financially settled, he would return from his trip with a golden shoe more honorable than the first. He then asked the permission of St. Peter for him to make up a lie so as to go to confession to the Pope and hence be tied in the chains to walk around the church seven times and from there to proceed to the locked chamber, which contained his relics and for the door to open for him so that he may receive the golden shoe. This is the first time that I have not liked the story that I am telling. Anyways, let's continue. The man then proceeded to the church of the apostle Peter in Rome and confessed a sin which he had which he in fact did not commit. As was his custom, the pope placed the man in the chains of the apostle Peter and he walked around the entire perimeter of the church seven times. From then he proceeded to the chamber and with his head he knocked on the door on the locked door. The chains in a miraculous manner fell off the door, and he proceeded to the throne of the Apostle Peter on which sat his holy relics. Then, in a wondrous manner, the Apostle learned lean oh the Apostle leaned out one of his legs to the man so as to give him his golden shoe. The man, full of gratitude, took the shoe and left the church. The doors to the chamber were again locked, and no one knew of what happened until the time came for the chamber door to be unlocked for one of the three feasts in which all were permitted to go in and venerate the apostle. When the Pope saw that the golden shoe was missing off St. Peter's foot, he was deeply grieved on being deceived, but he also knew that this could not have happened unless the Lord and St. Peter allowed allowed it to be so. Therefore, he considered the circumstances as something done by the will of God. In return, he had another shoe made like that of the first and placed on the foot of St. Peter. Meanwhile, the man who had fallen into tragedy and was given by St. Peter the loan of his golden shoe was greatly blessed financially. He became very wealthy, but also very greedy. Upon hearing that the Pope replaced the loaned-out golden shoe for another, the man theorized that he no longer needed to fulfill his vow. (gasps) That's not good. Um, That night, however, St. Peter appeared to the man and reminded him of his debt. The man therefore hurried, hurried, hurriedly set out to have a golden shoe made to fulfill his vow. With his golden shoe in hand, the man went to the Pope and confessed his sin. He was placed in the chains and made to walk the entire perimeter of the church seven times, after which he proceeded to the locked chamber to knock on the door with his head. The door of the chamber miraculously opened and the forgiven man was allowed to go into the private chamber and venerate the relics. He took the shoe the Pope had recently made off the foot of the saint and replaced it with the golden shoe he had made. When this was done, another wonder took place. The two feet of the apostle opened a slight bit as if bidding him to place the third golden shoe in between his other two feet. When this was done, the man left, having paid his debt, 
and with his sin forgiven. Okay, so here's the thing, after thinking about it for a little bit. I kind of, the story made me a little uncomfortable because this guy is asking for church property and just kind of stealing it. Um, But at the same time, St. Peter did put out his leg, um, giving permission for this guy to take the shoe. And now I'm almost more inclined to actually believe that this truly happened because it's like morally gray for me. And so because it's not so clear cut and moralized, like it, I think in, in a, in a nursery rhyme, the man would have had his sin forgiven, had gone home and found the shoe miraculously under his bed or something like that. And I think that it makes me, I think the story is more believable. The fact that he just took the shoe and that St. Peter put out is like, I don't know for me, that's, that's for me. I don't know what it is for you. But that's my, that's my interpretation of that second story that kind of left me a little uncomfortable. Anyways, I wanted to, one of the reasons why I wanted to do today's episode was because I think we as Eastern Catholics need to continue to maintain a devotion to St. Peter. I think a lot of the times, a lot of the maybe that 20th century wave of um, orthodoxy that was very anti-Catholic does seep into our community at times, and we get we get these um, we get these historical optics like, oh, uh, Peter was just one among equals. He wasn't the prince of the apostles, but but no, I think I, I was watching a program the other day that states that there was more more patristic evidence for the primacy of Peter in the first few centuries of the church than there is for the Eucharist. Isn't that wild? And now I'm just repeating that. I didn't actually go in and I didn't actually research and everything, but you should go home if you're an Eastern Catholic and you're actually wondering, you know, what actually is the role of the Pope? One, I think you should look at our catechism. You should look at our catechism of, well, uh, the Greek, uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. We have our own catechism called Christ Our Pascha, and you know what? I think I am going to read a little bit from that. I'll I'll pause right here. Okay, so this is from section two ninety one of Christ Our Pascha. It is the catechism of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. The first among self governing churches is the Church of Rome, because its presider is the Pope of Rome, the successor of the Apostle Peter. He is the teacher and the standard of the apostolic faith. To him the Lord has granted the gift of infallibility in matters of faith and morals when proclaimed ex cathedra, in order to preserve the purity and immutability of divine teaching. It also says, The Bishop of Rome, the bearer of the Petri ministry, convenes ecumenical councils, approves their decisions, stands behind and expresses the infallible faith teaching of the church, and resolves difficulties that arise in the life of varying self-governing churches. So in that instance, we see that we recognize the Pope as someone as the clear teacher of the apostolic faith. He is the one who says what's in and what's out. He is the one who who <laughs> approves the councils. It's so funny that you, you think of the um the the how do you say it? The the entire kind of Orthodox Catholic Church community we recognize we all recognize the first seven councils. 
well, who recognized them first but the Pope and approved which of the canons were passed and which ones were thrown out? And so I, I've been recently thinking about that and finding it, you know, it's kind of quite, a little funny, actually. Now, the second work that I'm going to quote from is, it's not a patristic source. I, I should have actually, maybe I'll do an episode on the patristic sources of papal primacy. But um, maybe that, that's for another time. What I'm going to read from is called Russia and the Universal Church by Dmitry Solonov. It was written in the 1900s, and what what he's trying to do, what the author is trying to do, is to give a refutation to kind of the orthodox historical optics of the time, and give an argument for the primacy, for papal primacy, and how how the Pope is the visual unifying icon of the Church, and. I suggest that you read it. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes so you can read it yourself. It's it's a PDF. It's free. and um, But I, one thing that I'll warn you as, as an Easterner, you do have to have kind of a, uh, you do have to have a thick skin because he is, he's an Orthodox person who's actually giving criticisms at times to Byzantine culture and the Byzantine Church. And I think that we need to, as Byzantine Catholics, maybe have the ability to criticize ourselves and not just play the play the minority card all the time to get away with things. Sometimes we say and we say we do things that are wrong too that need to be called out. Anyways, I would I would ask you with an open heart and mind to read this work, and I'll just read a little bit from it. Jesus Christ, the unique rock of the kingdom of God on the purely religious and mystical plane, sets up the prince of the apostles and his permanent authority as the fundamental rock of the church in the social order of the Christian community, and each member of this community united to Christ and abiding in the order established by him becomes an organic individual element, a living stone of this church, whose mystical and, for the time being, invisible foundation is Jesus Christ, and whose social and visible foundation is the monarchical power of Peter. So what's that saying? He's saying that, well, all of us are a part of the church, and all of us are a part of an order in which God made the church. God being a king. He's He's an emperor. He's he's king of the universe, and we completely believe that. So if he was king of the universe, we don't have chaos on the earth. We have, it, it is a true kingdom, one that is unified. And the unified power of his unified kingdom resides within the, as he says, the monarchical power of Peter. Now, to talk about the Pope like that may be kind of out of vogue for a lot of us. Peter is the apostle. He's the servant. We like that kind of imagery. But the monarchical power of Peter, the Pope being a ruler, um, ju- his jurisdiction jurisdiction being globally, universally, he's the universal pontiff. You know, it's it's a little uncomfortable because we, we all live in democracies where everyone gets a say. But really, God gives us order. And that which... St. Thomas Aquinas says this in his work on um, kingship, where he's describing what good kingship is. He says, that which reflects God the most, God loves the most, essentially. And so Peter acts as 
one, as we've discussed, he's he's the he's the arbiter of what's what's in the church teaching and what's not in the church teaching. He's two, he's that visible sign of unity that we can all look to and know that we are a part of a universal structure. And three, he is Christ's vicar. He is Christ's earthly ruler as well. And that is an idea. I'm not going to go too far into it because I myself don't really know how to think about that from today's standpoint. Regardless, these are things that we can talk about and we can ascribe to even as Eastern Catholics. All of our saints, um, all of our great saints have at one point or another observed papal primacy and believed in it. So, anyways, I'm rambling. Let's end this by praying today's tropar. Without leaving Rome, thou didst come to us by the honorable chains which thou didst wear, O foremost of the apostles, and venerating them with faith, we pray, by thine intercession with God, grant us great mercy. Thank you very much for listening. This has been your daily dose of Agios. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, pray for us.